Hi, ladies, it's Kathy Laurie, and I want to welcome you to this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which is our new series that you're going to be hearing from all of us podcasters coming up on the Virtue Podcast. This is a really exciting passage of Scripture. Uh, That is an understatement. Do you realize how intimidating this is to speak on this most amazing beginning and best and most powerful earth and life-changing sermon Jesus ever spoke? Golly, I don't feel up to this, but I'm going to do my best. How can you possibly comment adequately on some of the most magnificent and sublime words that Jesus ever spoke? Ah, inadequate, that's the word, humbled and prayerful, that you and I can see to deeper levels these incredibly familiar words and apply them to our lives. These are some of Jesus' most familiar and often quoted words. People have no idea who say these things, like, judge not, lest you be judged, that it was taken from this very famous sermon that Jesus spoke. Things like, let your yes be yes, or go the extra mile, or love your enemies, or don't be anxious about tomorrow, or judge not, lest you be judged, as I mentioned, or the narrow gate, or the house on the rock, or the Lord's prayer. Gosh, you know, all of that is found in these brief 12-minute long sermon. To read this thing just takes but a brief moment out of our day. And yet these three chapters were life-changing. No doubt Jesus spoke a much longer sermon than this, but this is a distilled version that Matthew gave us. And I think it's important for us to recognize, I think a little bit of background to this sermon will be helpful for us in understanding how very important these words are that we're about to study. We know that the Gospel of Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And from the very beginning genealogy in chapter 1, where it is stated that this direct descendant of King David, the one to whom God promised that he himself would establish a house for David, it says, when your days are over, this is God's promise to David, you will rest with your ancestors, and I will raise up an offspring to succeed you. I will establish his kingdom. And the people of God have been waiting, and we've been waiting all the way since the early chapters of Genesis for this promised offspring. And here he is, entering his public ministry. In the third chapter of Matthew, we see John the Baptist declaring Jesus as the one who was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And he said that I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Jesus' first message to his disciples that we have recorded is this, that the kingdom of God was at hand, or another translation puts it, that the kingdom of God had come near. Finally, God incarnate coming near to us once again. What was this kingdom going to look like? The next thing we read that Jesus says is found in chapter 4. And it says that he was preaching and teaching throughout all the synagogues of Galilee. It says that he went throughout proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, his kingdom, and healing this, get this, every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons and those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Imagine that, 
all these ailing, sick people. It was just such a pathetic crowd of people pressing in to get near to him. And it says great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond Jordan. Jesus was not just any ordinary teacher or leader. He wasn't just any ordinary king. He was and is the king that we have awaited for, the ultimate king. And what would his rule and reign encompass? Well, it wasn't quite what we would have expected. What was his teaching like? And what are the implications of this kingdom declaration? What are his priorities? Oh my, it is important to put this teaching in the context of where Matthew places this sermon in his gospel. This is the beginning of his ministry. And the crowds, they're growing. And right after Matthew tells us that the crowds are growing, he chooses his disciples. But before he gives his disciples their marching orders, he lays out for them a vision of the kingdom and the people who are welcomed into this kingdom and what that reign would begin to look like. And it would begin small and quietly in their hearts. And out of that small seed planted in each of these followers, it would work its way into the wider world. We see Jesus at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 5. We see him withdrawing from the crush of the crowds. And he goes to this mountain. It's, we've called it the Mount of Beatitudes. We've seen this in Israel. It's a beautiful um, sloping hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And traditionally, this is where he gave this great sermon. And he sits down. And nearest to him, he calls his disciples, but they weren't the only ones in attendance. There were the crowds surrounding him. Who were these first disciples that had come to follow him that he specifically hand-chose? Well, we know that we have the author of this gospel, Matthew, who was a tax collector. We have Simon, who was a zealot, who was a, a radical of the day, trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. We have devout, an ordinary fisherman, And of course, there are the crowds. You know, when we start a job or we begin a new class or take a new course or begin a new relationship of any kind, we have to lay out some ground rules, right? We have the expectations. Oftentimes, a teacher will say what our class is going to encompass and what are the rules and what our expectations are. It's been said that an unarticulated expectation is disappointment guaranteed. So here we have... In these opening words of this greatest sermon, Jesus laying out his expectations. At church, we say here that it is important that we love God and we work hard to serve the people who God loves. That is the expectation of everyone who works here at the church. At the beginning of my relationship with Greg, he's laid out some pretty clear expectations of me. They were brief They were very much to the point, and some people thought they were a little bit harsh. But in reality, I loved them. And what he told me was, if you ever get between me and my relationship with the Lord, our dating and our relationship is over. Very, very clear expectations, right? So here, before Jesus gives his disciples and us our marching orders, he's telling us who we are to be. And it begins with those amazing words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Can you imagine what the crowds and the disciples were waiting to hear? What were their expectations of this Messiah that they had chosen to follow? 
No doubt, Jesus was already exceeding their expectations in their idea of who the Messiah would be. The Apostle John wrote these words. He says, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth, and they beheld his glory. No doubt, they heard his teachings. No doubt, he spoke with that perfect balance of of strength and gentleness, of authority and humility, of kingliness and yet servanthood. There was never anyone who was like Jesus, and they knew it, and they saw it backed up by the miracles that he was performing. And yet he starts his first and famous sermon with the declaration, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus is telling them that the people who will occupy his kingdom must begin in this way. This is the only way any of us will ever enter the kingdom of God. It's been called Jesus' kingdom was an upside-down kingdom because it is upside-down. It's unlike any of our natural humanistic inclinations on how we are to live and how we are to survive. It's the dog-eat-dog world out there, right? And this is a truly counter-cultural way to live. What Jesus is telling us here in this passage called the Beatitudes or the Blesseds, or another way of saying it is these are the happiest people, is he's not talking about different kinds of people, the poor and the meek and the merciful. No, he's talking about his people. And this blessedness comes to us in all of these ways. All the blessings that he declares are essentially rooted and to be growing in the soil of a heart that is surrendered to Jesus on his terms. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. Being born again is not the end in itself. It's being born into something brand new. It's the gateway to the entrance into the kingdom of God. And he says these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, I can't think of anything more countercultural than that because our culture, if nothing else, is a self-help, do-it-yourself culture. Absolutely. You know how the language goes, believe in yourself, or you have what it takes, or love yourself, actualize your potential. Stop listening to all those negative voices going down in there. You have what it takes. That's pretty typical to hear. That can-do spirit is bred in us from birth. After all, we're Americans, not Americans. That kind of optimism and innovation is at times really good and helpful. We are perhaps the most do-it-yourself culture ever. If you have a problem, you Google it. How many times have you diagnosed yourself with WebMD? I know I have. Or tried to fix something watching YouTube videos. You can fix your own plumbing. You can fix your own car. You could take out your own appendix. Now, I'm just kidding on that one. But it's not that far from reality, is it? Go to any bookstore. It's unbelievable. And Jesus goes right against that. He says, wait. Listen to those nagging doubts and don't dismiss them so fast. Listen to some of those negative things. And he's not saying, hate yourself. You know what he is saying? He's saying you really are desperately poor. You don't have what it takes. You don't have the power to change yourself 
or save yourself, and neither do I. Now, before moving on, let me just say a word of warning. Some of you may be thinking, well, that is very, very unhealthy. That's awful. First of all, what are you going to do with all those $75 worth of self-help books that you bought last week? Huh? How many have you purchased in the last year? You know, it's seven easy ways to a happier marriage, 10 ways to train your children. Besides that, Somehow, all of this sounds sort of psychologically unhealthy, that you're to be poor in spirit. But here we have that first principle that Jesus gives us to entering his kingdom. And even the most successful addiction programs begin with this very thing. It is basically admitting that you are powerless over your own problems. Now, I don't think those addiction problems, that's where Jesus got this idea. It's where they got the ideas from Jesus himself. And the reason Jesus starts with this is that so many people approach Christianity like it's a self-help thing. It's, okay, well, I'm pretty good, but I could be better, or I can clean my life up, so I'll just come to church more, and I'll read more books, and I'll listen more carefully to sermons. Let me tell you something. You cannot enter the kingdom of God with that attitude. The Greek word Jesus chose to use here for poor comes from a root that signifies one who is cowering like a beggar. I don't know if you've traveled to any third world countries recently, but let me tell you, I have seen this. I have seen abject poverty and destitution, and it is not a pretty thing. And that is the word that Jesus says about us. He says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. This is not just someone who's simply lacking money, but someone who is so broke that he must beg enough to simply eat. One who is so fully dependent on someone else to give them what they need to sustain their lives. And in Jesus' view of his broken, fallen creation, that is every single one of us. There is nothing in yourself or in myself that we could ever do to deserve God's love and mercy. And when you're ready to admit that, that's when the blessing comes. Yours is the kingdom of God. You're in. Be willing to admit you don't have what it takes, but he does. I can't get in. I fail. God, help me. That's the first step. And there is blessedness in that. The next thing he says is, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. While I know a whole lot about the comfort that only Jesus can give to a person during a season of grief. I've written about it. I've experienced it. I've read about it. I know it firsthand. Jesus is the best comforter. I do want to say that is not what this passage on mourning is offering. There are so many other wonderful and important passages for us that grieve to to lean on, but here Jesus is offering a specific kind of comfort to believers who sorrow over their own sins and the sins of this fallen world. It follows on the heels of being poor in spirit when you see yourself as abjectly impoverished apart from God, and then you see yourself for who you are and the sins that you've committed. The English word for mourn, we have one word, mourn or grieve, but there are nine different words in biblical Greek. And the one used in this passage is the strongest and most severe of all of them. I think the best way for us to really grasp 
the attitude that Jesus cherishes and values and calls blessed is found in the story about the tax collector and the Pharisee. Do you know that this week, we are beginning a season that the traditional church calls Lent. Lent is a 40-day period of prayer and fasting and reflecting on our sins in preparation for the great celebration of Jesus' atonement and death and resurrection on Easter Sunday. This year, Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, February 14th, this very week that this podcast will be released. This parable was often used as an entry point for reflection on our desperation and our grieving and mourning over our own sin. Jesus told this parable about a Pharisee who prayed thus with himself. In other words, his prayers didn't reach any higher than the ceiling of the room he was in. He prided himself on the strict rules and behavior that he had kept. He went beyond what was required by the religious rules of the day. And it says that he stood alone by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like robbers and evildoers or adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. He was so confident in his religiosity that he literally asks God for nothing, and he receives nothing. I don't know what you might feel in your, God, I go to church every Sunday. I attend Bible study once a week. I even lead a small group. I study my Bible study. I have it spiral bound and underlined, and I tithe, and I'm not like these other people out there in the world. And it's easy to just go down the list of things that we would pride ourselves in not having done. God does not hear prayers from people like that. He tells us about this publican, or he was a tax collector, someone who was a despised Jew in his community who worked for the Roman Empire. He was seen as a turncoat, but he stood afar at a distance, and it said his prayer was heard. We're told he didn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says this about him, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. All he said was, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he beat his breast, and he didn't even lift his eyes to heaven. Do you know anything of the blessing and comfort Jesus gives when our sin is exposed and we see it for what it is, and we turn from it, and we grieve over it, and we cry over it, and we mourn? We've just done a prayer meeting at church recently where we looked at the passage in Joel where it says to rend your hearts and not just your garments. It's not just external stuff, ladies. It's how do you really feel about all sin? And then it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And let me just say this. A meek person is not a weak person at all. Do you understand what a meek person is really like? When you really accept the fact that you're a sinner and you've really owned up to it, and you've truly grieved over it, and you recognize who you are in Christ, you are more wicked than you ever dared fear, and you are more loved than you ever dared hope for. That is the attitude of a meek person. They see both the beauty and the blessing of being meek. They have a true view of themselves. They're humble. They're gentle. They're sensitive. They're patient with other people. 
They see themselves for who they are. They don't feel sorry for themselves. They're not focused on themselves. Jesus says of them, the meek shall inherit the earth. And you would expect just the opposite, that meek people would get nowhere. Was it Leo DeRosha who said, good guys finish last? I mean, that's kind of the attitude the world would have, right? But that's not attitude Jesus takes. He says, meek people are the ones that progress in the kingdom. They inherit the earth. Sometimes we think it's being tough. It's being overbearing. It's being assertive. It's struggling to get ahead in the workplace. It's dog-eat-dog. The weaklings go onto the trash heap of history, and the powerless possess nothing. That's how we usually think. That's what the world thinks. And that is the default thinking that we have. Exalt yourself. Push yourself ahead, or others are going to get ahead of you. But in the kingdom of God, the principles that govern are reversed. Do you see how upside down this must have sounded to the apostles? And it's upside down to even our natural way of thinking. Here Jesus promises a beautiful inheritance to those who are not being assertive or wrangling or manipulating by their own might, but by meekness they move forward. And then finally, we come to this last beatitude that we're going to talk about today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Have you ever hungered and thirsted after something to the point where it hurt? I have. I'll never forget going on a bike ride up in the hills of Redlands. It was about a 90-mile bike ride, and I had gone out without enough food. My water bottle was empty. I was at the top of the mountain, and it was a long way back to the finish line, and I began to cramp and my legs began to hurt and I was so thirsty and I'd completely run out. I was all alone by myself out there and the next rest stop was miles away. When I finally came to that rest stop and they had water and sliced oranges, you would have thought I was a starving person because that's exactly how I felt. I shoved those oranges in my mouth with the juice running down my cheeks and all over my hands. I didn't care. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was at the point of fainting. Have you ever hungered and thirsted after righteousness to the point of it hurting, just seeing God and wanting Him so desperately, wanting to be like Him so desperately, wanting to see justice enacted in the world that you live in so desperately? One of David's psalms says that as a deer pants for the water brook, so thirsts my soul after you. And sometimes we have this image of a serene lake in a forest with a deer and the still waters, and he is drinking, and it looks so lovely and refreshing. But let me tell you that when David wrote this, he was writing from the wilderness in Judea, and there are not many trees. There are a few small places that might be considered an oasis. But when a deer pants, it's because there's desperation there. David has spent years in that wilderness, and when he talked about hungering and thirsting after God— that was the picture that he had in his mind. John Stott said this. He said, There is no greater secret of growing in the Christian life than to have a healthy and hearty spiritual appetite. Scripture again and again promises to the hungry that God will satisfy them with good things. Can I ask you, what are you craving today? What are you hungry for? What is it that you think you need at this moment, to be happy and satisfied. There's so many things out there that can ruin our appetite for the one thing and for the one person who will truly 
quench our thirst and satisfy our hunger. We have this righteousness promised to us at the moment of salvation. Yes, that's ours. It is our possession. And yet, we're told that we are to grow in righteousness and we are to yearn for it. There are times when I'm making dinner for Greg and he comes into the kitchen and he starts eating. He starts nibbling all the things that I've got set out in perfect proportion to prepare a feast for him. And I want to say, don't spoil your appetite. I I love to feed hungry people. I love it when he comes to the table hungry. Don't wreck your appetite feasting on the junk food that the world has to offer. Whatever that is, power, beauty, position, possessions, accomplishment, praise, what what do you really desire that you think you need? God is saying, hunger after this. And one day we are promised in Psalm 17, verse 15, David said himself, I will see your face in righteousness and I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Ladies, all the things we once held dear are nothing compared to what we have in Christ when we abandon all else and lay hold of his true riches. All that this world reveres and wars to own, as the song goes, all I once thought gain I count as loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. My heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, this all-surpassing gift of righteousness, and to know the power of his risen life, and to know him in his suffering, and to become like him in his death, and so with him to live and never die. That's my prayer for all of us as we begin this amazing journey through the Sermon on the Mount, that we will be poor in spirit, that we will mourn over our sin, that we will be meek in our estimation of ourselves and of others, and that we will hunger and thirst for the righteousness that He gives. Father, thank you for these amazing words. They're not just beautiful sayings, not just beautiful words that we put on a plaque and look at. They are your words. And this is the entry point for all of us. We live in these places. We never outgrow them. We never get beyond being poor in spirit or grieving over our sin or seeking to be meek or hungering and thirsting after true righteousness. Lord, show us the way to walk that we might reflect you in this world. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.